Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. I'm really excited to share this episode with the wonderful Lauren Groff. But firstly, if you're listening to this on October 23rd, this is the last week to buy my latest novel, Limelight, as a 99p Kindle mega deal. Christmas is coming. You can order a signed copy of Limelight or any of my books, including Insatiable, Careering, The Sisterhood and How to Be a Grown-Up from the Margate Bookshop. They deliver all across the UK. Listeners in the US can buy the brand new edition of How to Be a Grown-Up, which is published by Urano. It's also the last week to sign up for my writing course, Write Like a Reader. At the time of recording, there are still a couple of places available. And if you'd like to talk more about reading, writing and your own creative work, you'll want my Substack, creativeconfidenceclinic.substack.com or you can email creativeconfidenceclinic at gmail.com. I'd love to see you there. You can join me for conversations about books, craft talk and cheerleading. Now to Lauren Groff. Lauren is a novelist and short story writer whose work is hugely acclaimed. She has been garlanded with awards. She's a frequent national book finalist and her fans include Stephen King, Britt Bennett, Marion Keyes and For What It's Worth Me. We're celebrating her astonishing new book, The Vast Wilds. Lauren is a writer's reader. She describes reading as her main job. We talked about sexy books, precocious reading and the ultimate creative meditation. Huge thanks to Waterstones Gower Street for letting us record the episode in your lovely shop. You might be able to hear a bit of London traffic rumbling by. So, this is a question that puts you on the spot a bit, because one of the things I really loved about The Vast Wilds is, in spite of everything, I think there are cosy passages when fish are caught and when shelter is built. As a reader, I found that so warming and so satisfying. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there are any books that make you feel that way, whether they're books where that's happening kind of amidst panic and violence and drama, or if it's a more general kind of Little House in the Big Woods vibe. Oh, well, there are a lot of books that more generally have those uh, cozy vibes for me. Um, The one that came to mind when you said in the midst of the drama is actually weirdly War and Peace, that moment in the midst of battle when I think it's Prince Alexei um, falls down, he's struck or something, he falls down and he's looking up and they're 
bullets whizzing by and he just sort of sees the clouds. <laughs> There's this beautiful moment of just rest and peace and understanding what it means to be alive in this time when he does, he's not quite sure if he's, he's still alive. So there's that incredible passage. But um, a book that I will go to for a larger understanding of just comfort uh, is Middlemarch by George Eliot. There's something about the golden honeyed nature of her wisdom that just you just live within it for the however many hundreds of pages that it takes to read Middlemarch and then you know you're reborn into like greater wisdom and calm somehow I've never read it for shame I <gasps> think because I've been so daunted oh. by it but how yeah. did you meet it when did you first read it did someone oh. recommend it to you oh my gosh so my mother was never a giant reader when I was a child she she loves books but she works really hard and she's the sort of person who I think she may have a little bit of ADHD because she um when she's given an option she will have a project she will paint a windowsill right and so at one point when I when it became clear that I was a giant reader and 10 11 12 years old she went to her shelf where she had all of the books from college and she pulled down Middlemarch and she gave it to me. And so I do associate Middlemarch with my mother and I actually don't, didn't remember that moment until now. Um, but yeah, I got it from her. Oh, that's really lovely. Yeah. <laughs> she read it. Was it a book that she'd enjoyed? Oh, she loved or? it. Yeah. She saw me reading, I think it was Jane Austen at the time. She said, oh, if that interests you, you know, I know of another incredible English woman writer that you might want to read. Oh, and yeah. that feeling as well at that age where yeah. an enormous book isn't a scary challenge. You think, yes, right. bang for my buck. Right, exactly. No, and it, and you feel so smart reading it. In fourth grade, I read um, Gone with the Wind, which I know is a piece of tripe, but uh, at the time, it was it was the biggest book I ever attempted, and it was something like a thousand pages, and I felt very proud of myself for finishing it. So <laughs> I was, you know, an egotistical reader even then. Well, I feel as though Gone with the Wind is rarely mentioned as part of that classic canon. And mm -hmm. I think it absolutely is because it shaped the imagination of so many writers and it's so full of these big emotions and big themes. And I think people are a little embarrassed by it. But would yes. they be embarrassed about yes. it if it'd been written by a dude? <laughs> so, I think they would be, though, because it is a little bit embarrassing. Right? I mean, there are a lot of moments in that book that in the 21st century do not seem okay i mean um i don't know i mean i think we have a lot of literary snobbery and a lot of shame in america about our literary heritage because it's very short uh so i think um this book because it has a love story at the center because it's so sexy because of clark gable and vivian lee um it became something other than i think think you maybe you're right maybe maybe in another 150 years we'll look back without the shame and maybe see the effects of the book on the world maybe maybe that's what we want to to pay attention to is that love story what you were responding to when you're in fourth grade had you seen the movie i had not seen the movie no i didn't know anything about the book except that it was set during the civil war and it really um really stirred my imagination right in fourth grade you're just a baby you don't understand anything about humans or like the human nature and so coming across scarlet who's this larger than life personality right she's uh she's bold she's mean um she does terrible things right she's actually a very good heroine uh 
and suddenly I saw this person in this society where she was supposed to be kept docile because Southern women are do not speak out. Um, and having this large grandiosity um, was really kind of amazing. It's, it kind of blew my mind. Um, and then... The love story, of course, uh, was also deeply compelling for my fourth grade minds. I think a lot about those big love stories we respond to and things like, um, you know, stories like Jane Eyre and even yeah. you know, in Jane Austen, where as I think, you know, young, smart girls and women, we gravitate to those stories. Mm-hmm. And it takes, I mean, to be honest, it's taken me decades, but a lot of those are, hold on a minute, <laughs> that was a toxic, horrible, <laughs> was a bad man, and marriage is simply is a the bad only viable yeah. economic proposition. <laughs> yes, yeah. It wasn't a love match at all. <laughs> no. Absolutely. No, it was horrible. But, uh, you know, of course, we're grown and raised in a, a web of... Um, of understanding that it takes a very long time to sort of make our way out of. So I'm proud of us for having gotten that far, right? Absolutely. And even when in real life it was very difficult to marry for love, that Mm -hmm. women still wrote about that and yearned for it. I think that's really exciting. And it's kind of using writing to kind of heal and or escape, I guess. I love that take that um love matches are a sign of female autonomy that's really beautiful that's a that's a smart way to put it i love this image of you as the reader in your family Mm -hmm. and the sort of proper book addict when did that take hold can you remember the first book you read on your own and you thought this is it this is for me yeah so um i have an older brother who's only 16 months older than i am and he is a the sort of person who will suck all the air out of every room that you have ever been in he's very loud he's very opinionated um when he speaks somebody else speaks uh so i took to books really early as a way of just being able to control my world and to be able to um to sit apart and and probably deal with my anxiety. So I was a reader from, I think, four years old. The first book I read was a Little Bear book. I don't know if you have these here. They're these beautiful, I want to say either early 20th century or late 19th century, um, line drawing books with Little Bear and his friends. And there's this one moment where I remember reading um, Carrots, Potatoes, Peas, and Tomatoes. And I read the words, and that was the first time I actually had that that shock of uh, recognition that the words that I had memorized are actually the words on the page. So um, it was pretty early for me, just because I wanted to escape family dynamics. I love that it's just it's understanding a secret code, isn't it? Those memories of just figuring it out, and when you realize as well, oh, and it's not just this book. It's all of them. It's all of them. You have the secret code. Yeah. No, it's so mysterious and wonderful. Especially, so I'm from a very tiny town of under 2,000 people. Suddenly, I had the entire world opened up, right? It was, it's like the library was a portal to Narnia, right? It was really the most extraordinary thing that could, can happen to a child is getting literacy and being allowed um, to just discover whatever books you wanted to discover. And I read voraciously. I read um, in a Catholic manner everything I could come across, right? Things that were not appropriate in any way. And what would yeah. surprise <laughs> us in that list? I'd love to hear about the, the weird <laughs> things that popped up. <laughs> um, I think I probably have talked about this before, but um, I was deeply into Clan of the Cave Bears. 
really ran away too early. These books have come up on the podcast before. Am I right in thinking they're, um, oh my God. they're quite erotic? Oh, they're massively erotic, but it's caveman sex. So it's so weird, right? And it's, um, yes, it was the first understanding I had of any kind of sexual anything. And it was like really brutal and horrible. And that, that's what I, I guess, like I thought it this activity that people did was right because of these books my um my dad saw me rereading clan of the cape bears didn't know what was in it and he went out and bought me the second book in the series which was very conflicted (laughs) (laughs) when i read the book because i was really grateful to him but also like ooh, this is really gross my dad gave it to me (laughs) and is having a really hard moment with that book um yeah no that was a very strange book that i picked off my parents shelves i also picked up um, a bunch of philip roth when i was really young um and he is unstinting when it comes to sex for sure um there was this uh, Aesop's Fables that was drawn by a very famous 1960s line artist, but he put like the genitals very um, squarely in the center of the book. And I, I remember reading it almost like trying to figure out what these things are on the page. Um, very young, like five or six years old. So there were a lot of books that my parents just let, let us read because, you know, th- I think they did the right thing. I mean, I think they gave us enough of a understanding um to come to them if we were confused and then they trusted us to 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 have our own like ability to deal with the things that we read i think as well the number of times when i go back and read something that i read for the first time when i was very young i thought i do not remember this at all no it's true but then i reread uh bonjour tristesse a couple of years ago yes i just reread that yeah 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 like about a month ago yeah because i was gonna say i remember loving it so much i think i would have been about 12 or 13 very much the right age for it and in my memory there was loads of sex and right. was reread. I was like where did the sex go right it was always not there not on the page at all no you're right it was more of an erotic book than like a sexual book for sure yeah and it's very small too it's yeah. really short in the edition I read there was another one of her stories with it which I don't think I had read before and I don't think a lot really happens it's just a, a young woman and an older man but there's an amazing line I love where she's really grumpy and they're staying in a hotel somewhere fabulous in the south of France and it's all got a bit of a sort of like uh, Godardy feel to it and he says something like you know you're in a terrible mood and there's nothing that will help you beyond luxury and alcohol I'm in that mood so. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah that's beautiful when do you read are you it sounds like you're someone who still has a reading habit and that's what you do when you need mm. to be with the book but do you, have you ever found it difficult to make time for it? Have you always read? No, I don't have another job. This is my only job. So reading is my first job and then writing is my second one. So I read every day, all day long. Um, if I'm going for a run, I'm listening to an audiobook. Unless I have to think through something in the work itself and then I listen to my own labored breath. Um, <laughs> if I can't work well in the morning when I get up and go up to uh, work, I, I will read because that's also part of writing. And I read before bed as well because screens make me insane and I can't sleep if I have a screen like four hours before bed so I'm genuinely reading all the time I read about 300 books a year or something around there 
I do think that is such an important part of writing, mm-hmm. and I always want to talk about it. You you cannot begin to write unless you know you know read so everything true. and like so read true. great books and you yeah. know and read bad books, read the sort of the high quality serious things. Yes. Also, read Gone with the Wind or the. 2023 version of Gone with the Wind because we need that. We do, absolutely. Well, I think you're right, right? I mean, I think that it's probably, it's just a random figure, but I do think about a thousand books go into writing a single book, right? You have to have read a lot. You have to have built up that foundation of understanding how to tell a story, um, all of the many options that you have, right? Um, and, and I guess to see into other people's minds the way that books allow you to see into other people's minds uh, enough. Um, so before you can actually set out and write the, the beautiful book that is lurking in you, I 100% agree. Do you know a book, um, it's an English book, an English writer, and it's sort of early 20th century, possibly a little bit earlier than that, um, Diary of a Provincial Lady by E.M. Delafield. No, I don't. It's super fun. It's like Bridget Jones, but sort of a hundred <laughs> years ago. And it's just very, 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 very funny. Diary entries. I cannot wait. Of, she, they will have it here. She's a kind of, I suppose, a upperish middle class woman. Mm-hmm. Um, who She's a writer. Mm-hmm. And I think it's sort of fairly autobiographical, but it's sort of the managing the household and the grumpy husband. And she's got a cook that she's always having a fight with. And But when I read that, and I think I tried to read it when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. and I didn't really feel it, or I didn't really get it. Mm-hmm. And I came back and read it quite recently. And mm-hmm. there are lots of books up until wartime, mm-hmm. which is really lovely and really, weirdly for a war, it is great fun. But suddenly... I had that moment of, you know, being catapulted through space and time, thinking, oh, all these authors I love, the references are there, and the language and the rhythm and even the lines, like, of course, it was a sort of fabulous joining of the dots. I love that. No, it's so true, right? I mean, we're all joining a chorus that's already been sung for thousands of years, right? We're not soloists. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's so comforting as well when we're writing, and I don't know... Because I think all all of your novels are so fiercely original and so sort of independent. But I don't know if you've ever had that fear of like, has this been done? Should I do it? Well, I mean, you know this because um, probably you do this too. You put little homages into all of your books, right? They're little moments that you say... I'm, I'm intentionally layering in mm. Investor Wilds, for instance, it was Cormac McCarthy or Robinson Crusoe or um, Proust even. There was mm. a moment, there was a Proustian moment that I sort of layered into the book as well. And you, and you do it out of love because you want those voices uh, echoing in, in your work as well, right? Um, I think I'm, I'm, I'd be more afraid of uh, those homages, those voices not being in the work than, than thinking of that I've... Um, worrying that I'm, I'm writing something that's already been written. Oh, that's a really, really beautiful way to put it. And I love that idea of these voices being our guides and our mentors and yeah. be able to go back and it's a sort of a, a tribute and a thank you oh, as well. Oh, absolutely. And also I think for readers, mm-hmm. there's something really magical, I think, and what I love so much about doing this podcast is when I meet you know, incredible authors and then we're both the fans of the same book mm-hmm. and it's such... It's so intimate and it's so leveling and it feels so kind of democratic. And I think that's it as well as 
as a writer, when you're reaching out to your reader and your reader recognises it, we're like, hey, we're, we're on the same team here. You've mm-hmm. got that feeling of being together on the page. Which well, I like. it's so democratic, right? I think that um, it's probably the most democratic art there is because the reader does 50% of the mm-hmm. work, right? So you're meeting the artist um, in exact equality. Uh, the artist isn't trying to sort of... Um, be in a position higher than you in any way, right? They're not imposing the art on you. You're actually creating it as you're reading, which I find so profoundly moving and wonderful. It also means that as a writer, I'm writing to my readers on an equal basis. They are my my absolute equals. They're helping me fi- finish this book. Um, and I love that, right? Because I do sometimes feel as a, when I'm sitting at a play I'm being spoken at sometimes Mm. or um, I'm looking at art in the Tate Modern Mm. and I'm trying to figure out what emotional effect it's supposed to have on me I I feel like spoken to and not invited in sometimes right so I I do think books are uniquely democratic I saw a painting today um, we had a look around the Tate Britain and it's a painting I've seen there before and I've recognised, and it's enormous, and I'm not going to remember what it's called or who it's by, and I wish I did, but <laughs> it's really, really dark, but there are these spots of light and sort of very pale pink among oh. the green, and there's a sort of swamp effect, but you can see flowers, and there's a sort of sense of the light shifting, and I really love it, and I find it really beautiful mm. and moving in a way I can't quite articulate, and when I thought, what is that? And I looked, and I think it was from, it was inspired by... Friday the 13th or The Omen or like a proper, but yeah, a horror film. And I'm not um, a big watcher of horror. Are you? Because there's so much no. horror in your, yeah. you know, that the um, sort of the, the alienation and the loneliness of the landscape closing in. Yeah. Um, and you, I think you create that horror so vividly. Do you read much horror? No, no. I, um, I think I have something that's, uh, I think I heard it. Um, described as emotional synesthesia. <laughs> so like uh, if I'm watching a horror movie, I'm actually feeling like these terrible things are happening to my body. And if I'm reading a, a horror book, I'm feeling them in my actual body um, and I can't bear it. I, I've never been able to watch a horror film in my life. Yeah, I cannot watch Wiley Coyote fall off a cliff <laughs> without feeling it. And it's briefly yes. like singing nettles. Yes. It's electricity. I feel that too. That's exactly. We must have the same thing. My younger son also has it too. None of us can actually sit in a room when something scary is mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. I have to do push ups just to stay in tense situations sometimes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I do wonder how many authors feel that way there's a writer I really love called Catherine May who wrote Mm. a book called Wintering I don't know if you've ever I've definitely heard of it yeah come across her she writes about um I guess sort of different kinds of neurodiversity Mm. and she wrote a book called The Electricity of Every Living Thing but it's about a sort of extreme stimulation and sensitivity Mm. and seeking quiet and seeking things that restore her but also having to make peace with the fact that she's got to live in a world where that's not always going to be Mm. available to her but uh, she's a really kind of clear but lyrical writer and need to find that book too yeah like i said it it, um, (laughs) it's a really beautiful new edition of it actually it's um, got a really gorgeous cover but yeah, how many of us are here reading and writing because we, you know, <laughs> noises and, you know, cartoon yeah. characters falling off cliffs are like, the world is too much. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I definitely, I do have OCD. Um, it's just 
you know, part of my neuro makeup. Um, and I do think part of reading and writing is the control factor. I mean, you can control for what's going on in the in the world in front of you, right? Even if it's in a book, you can put the book down if, if it's too much, if it's a, a overload, like a sensory overload. Yeah. I read a New York Times profile of you, which I re- loved, and there was a detail that stuck in my head about you writing different books concurrently, yes. which I thought was sort of amazing. And to be able to move between those worlds and those spaces. And is that something that you've always done? I wonder if it's one of those things with sort of split writers in two, where some be like, oh gosh, I could never do that. But I thought, oh, it sounds really appealing, because you do, it gets so immersive and so intense, and you do need to go and be in another world for a while. Yeah, I think it's um, mostly helpful when I'm I'm having a hard time with a, a specific narrative. I can always go to the one that's actually calling to me, that's feeling urgent, that has some heat to it, you know. Um, but I, in truth, I do it because I I do. I mean, quote, waste a lot of my work. I mean, I write in drafts that I never reread. Um, I put them in a box and then I start over again. And so it's a way of always feel as feeling as though there's something that I will be able to finish. Um, it may not be the thing that is most urgent to me now, but I'm definitely working on it, right? And I have my fingers in it, and I'm thinking of it. And it, the most important thing is that it's it's sort of brewing in the subconscious and it's the subconscious that does the most of the work right it's the subconscious that's the one set to dreaming through the whole scope of the novel before the novel is written i think that comes back to reading doesn't it Mm -hmm. that place in the brain that's just a bit more lucid not trying to sort of force anything through i do think so too i wish we had a neuroscientist here to tell us exactly what's going on (gasps) oh (laughs) what would be brilliant is i could do a special series because i'm actually um it's all very much um to be announced but I'm working on a non-fiction book that is about I suppose the emotions of reading and exactly what you were saying that books are what I've always reached for Mm -hmm. to feel better Mm -hmm. but also I think that now more than ever people are a little bit frightened of books and that fear of sort of not having the time and there are so many demands on us and I do believe that there are some of the people who need books the most might be reading the least and how to really in the way that I think that until you know relatively recently the idea that of exercising and moving your body because it felt good and not because it was going to make you thin mm-hmm. or because you, you, the doctor had told you to or whatever, mm-hmm. that sort of relatively novel. I'm like, I wish we could do the same for books. I'm sure you're right. I think it's, um, I think you're right. I think people are intimidated. Maybe they're not scared, but they are intimidated by the idea of not finishing a book. Um, there are easier modes of engaging or disengaging from the world, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, watching Netflix yeah. is much easier you just cue something up and then you push the button have there been any books over your reading career that have sort of intimidated you or anything you've started and not been able to stick with and also I also love to ask are there any books that you haven't loved and haven't wanted to finish and then you've come back to so many yeah so the most recent example is life and fate by vasily grossman it's an amazing book it's um russian about world war ii and it's sort of a constellation structure so it takes a very long time to understand what is even going on how the characters are related um but you just sort of eventually surrender to the book itself it's vast also i think it's like 1200 pages it's an enormous tome and i try I tried to read it for for a while and I just couldn't get into it. 
absolutely love this book. It's so good. And then the other one was Don Quixote, but it's because I kept getting stuck in the beginning. I don't know if you remember, but there are these awful poems in the beginning of Don Quixote. They're just like egregiously awful. I've never read it. And I think that might be why I I should read this. Everyone says it's great. It's so funny. It's so wonderful. And it's, um, he's doing, metafictional techniques that you don't see again for another 300 400 years it's really an astonishing book um and you just have to again let it wash over you right like like moby dick is a book just to let it wash over you um i love the bit i love the big door stoppers that you can get lost in and wander around and that have just wonky structures they're just monsters like chimeras like put together from the head of a unicorn and like the body of a lion right? like <laughs> there's no rhyme or reason to them and yet they hang together because it's this one single voice um a brilliant person just uh, smashing it all together i love those things i think it's great i would love to make a whole podcast mini series with you called something like you can skip this part we take the classics and we say okay go from here okay that's i would love to do that that'd be great A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. We'll be back to Lauren soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Big Swiss by Jen Began. This is a very funny, very dark story about romantic obsession and death. Greta's house and life are already falling down when things become even more shambolic as she falls hard for the woman whose sex therapy tapes she has been hired to transcribe. This story has it all. Sex, drugs, violence, dog, hipsters and a bee infestation. I loved it. Big Swiss is published by Faber and out now. Now back to Lauren. I think Moby Dick is definitely a book that I think a lot of us were made to read Mm. at some point. I think that's such a challenge as well, isn't it? When we're told this is canon and you have to love this and that feeling like, you know, this book is smart and if Mm -hmm. you don't love it, you're dumb. I think I really felt that at school with Thomas Hardy. Oh God, Thomas Hardy. Yeah. Yeah. I was not living my best life with that guy. I love, I love Moby Dick so much. I, you know, I do think it's, um, joyous and funny so much funnier than it and it gives you as a writer it gives you license to do anything because he does just anything and it works I liked reading it uh, this time so I read it most recently with my friends as a um it's kind of a microcosm of America and it's a criticism of America particularly at the time that he wrote it which is just before the Civil War he's in search of whiteness the monstrous whiteness and um, the monstrous whiteness has obviously infected my entire country <laughs> from the beginning so uh, it is probably the most critical um, political classic American book that exists on the planet and it, like I was not ready to see that when I read it before at 20 23 years old. It's a very terrifying thing, I think, to contemplate the true loss of innocence when you really, really realise the people that are in charge have, have made a mess. There's not. Hmm. I think there's a, a loss of hope there, and also that yeah. it's liberating and terrifying to think, oh, I suppose it's 
It's on us. At the moment, which contemporary writers do you think are doing that work? Oh, I was so excited when Jan Fosse won the Nobel. I love him so much. Um, I don't know if you've read Septology. It, it's, again, a giant doorstopper. It's um, a single sentence, seven books uh, all in one. But it's one of the most extraordinary books I've ever read. It's like a, an ecstatic prayer. And I cried like 15 times when I read it. It's the most, it's the, it's the closest I've come to a contemporary writer making a mystical experience happen inside my head. Oh, wow. It's really It's an ayahuasca book. It is an ayahuasca <laughs> book. It's like, he's like, God, I see God through Jan Fosse. Now, a book I loved that yes. I was really, really scared of is uh, Duck's Newburyport by mm-hmm. Lucy Ellman, which mm-hmm. is a, a single sentence in a mere thousand pages. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that was my training. <laughs> I might be ready for septology. It's a very strange book. So you, um, it takes a while to get over your own resistance mm-hmm. to the cyclical nature of the structure. Um, but as soon as you just, I guess, succumb and surrender, it, it washes over you like waves. It's really beautiful. I guess there are parallels as well there with kind of non-figurative art and the way our brains are so desperate to make sense of things and that panic we feel and how to trust that part of our brains that you were talking about that's sort of absorbing and it's not it's more conscious than anything but it's not perhaps conscious in a way that we recognize it's not working in a, a linear way um, is that, I was just, that reminds me of something and I might be completely wrong. Is it in On Beauty by Zadie Smith where that comes up a lot? Sort of I don't know. I don't remember that, that book very I ju- Yeah, I, I just remember really enjoying it. I, uh, me too. I always enjoy her voice. She's she's so brilliant. I think yeah. I saw you mentioning N.W. in a I love that book. I think books. that's her, her best book, ah. but I don't know. Nobody else seems to think that. I really want to go back to it. Yeah. In reading that, and again, I thought, I do remember really enjoying this. I mean, it, loving being in the book. And I think because I love her essays so much. Oh, her, yes, yeah. Nonfiction. She's just, uh, she's got one of those George Eliot voices to, to bring it back to the beginning, yeah. right? She's like, she's like a honeyed wisdom that you want to swim in. Which is, it's really very, uh, she's very wise. She's very like, she has like a kind of omniscience, even in her essays that are first person that is really unusual. Like she's able to make these leaps that I think are balletic and very, her mind is a beautiful thing to watch, I think. There's a wisdom and a calmness and it is as though she's, she creates a very big space for us all to wander in mm-hmm. and she doesn't really mind where we stop. She's never mm-hmm. driving at one point and saying, this is it and you are here. That's true. And I love that. There's an openness, a radical openness, mm. right? She, she doesn't finish any of the essays with like a, this is what everyone should believe, mm. which I think a lot of contemporary writers do to the detriment of thinking, right? I think um, to, to make an argument, oftentimes they, they close the argument off, mm. um, but she does not ever do that. And I really admire her for that. That's probably harder. Yeah, it feels especially courageous yeah, yeah. now. I would agree. Yes. And it, I mean, another book that I've never read and I keep trying to read and get thrown off as um, Infinite Jest and it's because of her that I want to keep trying. Can I tell you I we were talking about this book in the car over here and oh, I read Infinite Jest on my spring break senior year of university. That's how big a nerd I was. So when my friends were out you know partying um, and, and I was by the pool reading this massive I'm so, it's imagining the setup and like <laughs> MTV is in Boca Raton and you're there. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, I was sitting there like with the book and my um my sunglasses and large hat. Yeah, it was very nerdy. It was the most nerdy thing. And are you glad you did so it? So happy because every time I look at that book now, I think of sunlight and Mexican food and uh you know my friends understanding that I'm a jerk and that I'm not going to go out partying. It sounds like you read in all formats, non audio book as well oh, I yeah. love audiobooks yeah. and I wanted to ask you had any favorite narrators or books that you feel as though you've enjoyed especially because of hearing oh, them I'm sure what's her name Julia Whelan does an amazing job every time she oh, she's does fabulous, she's fabulous she? and have fabulous. you read her novels I've not yet even though I know her and she did Fates and Furies <gasps> I, I know so cool. I know well, I know um please Tell her I'm a massive fan. Oh, really? Okay. Because um, I know she did a, a book I love, um, really good actually, by Monica Heisey, well, okay. which I think she did in a sort of fabulous and funny way. And I've not read much, The Oxford Year, and there's a second novel that she wrote, and it's really meta, and it's about, um, it's a rom-com about actors who do romance audiobooks wow. and it's really smart and really really fun and it's got so many layers to it and it's one of those books it's so it's so charming and so knowing and Good. it does that gorgeous kind of Emily Henry thing of saying I know you know what the what the rhythms and the, the beat, what the beat of the story is going to be. Let's just enjoy it together. Oh, wow. Okay. And really I can't wait to it. read it. I should read it. I feel really bad now. Thanks for <laughs> listening, I think it's called. Cool. Thank you Thanks for listening. For, okay, thank you for listening. I will look it up. They probably have it here in this bookstore. I'm sure they have it here. <laughs> it's so fun to be in a bookstore. Do you have any favorites, favorite bookstores? Favorite, oh, there's so many favorite bookstores. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, in the US, I love Books and Books in Coral Gables, which is in Miami. Uh, I love McNally Jackson in New York. Um, there are too many to name, but here I really like Daunt Books uh, a lot. Daunt's so lovely. Daunt's so lovely. I love McNally Jackson too. I've not been in New York in a long time, but I would, I've been there before. My favorite thing to do is to sort of spend an embarrassing amount of money on a shiny, lovely book that um, I, d- I bought this book. It was, it was a hardback and it was expensive. And it had a sort of very Hockney-esque cover and it was all like <laughs> 70s like swimming pools in <laughs> somewhere in sort of Southern California. And I think it was a, a quite a serious, an academic book about kind of Playboy and pop pornography. And I'm like, where did that book go? <laughs> but I remember going to um, Café Jutan afterwards yeah. and having my avocado toast like a great big tourist and thinking I'm doing this is my this is my holiday this is a treat that's what everywhere I go I go to the bookstore first we were just in Lisbon and I went to that I can't remember the name of it can you remember oh that incredible bookstore that's just it's in that old um warehouse Oh, and sorry, I'm thinking of a different bookstore in a different place in Portugal. So no, I don't think I know. Are you one. thinking of that really gorgeous one? Like the most beautiful the one bookstore in Porto. Yes, yeah, that you I are. think has yeah. a sort of, yeah. now has a turnstile. And I think that please don't come in and just, you know, put this on TikTok and oh, don't really? buy a book. <laughs> it's a come in, you must buy a book. <laughs> That's the entry fee. Yeah. That's so fun. No, I don't have a, a favorite. They're all my favorite. <laughs> that's the that's the best answer. <laughs> have you been to Anne Patchett's? In, um... Yeah, I was just there actually. Yeah, <gasps> I, and I love her. I love the dogs. She um, she always brings the dogs. Uh, and you at one point for Matrix, I got to sit with a dog on my lap as Anne oh, interviewed me wow. with a dog on her lap, which was the most joyous thing of all times. Amazing. If I had a bookstore, there it'd be dog friendly for sure. I have zoomed with Sparky. 
You and have that's seemed as sparky. Oh. It's very exciting. Dave, it my is. friend, um, the writer Nina Stibby, who's really great and really funny, took a screenshot of just sort of on one side it was sparky and on the other side it was just my face doing a sort of Macaulay Culkin-esque like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> I met a dog last night um, in Manchester. Uh, what was his name? Buzz. And he he did part of my interview last night. It was really lovely. Buzz the Pomeranian. Wow, did Buzz have great questions? They're better than my questions. Well, no, he had no questions. It was a very difficult interview. <laughs> <laughs> No a lot of snarling and growling. <laughs> Amazing. You have dogs, right? I have one dog. Her name is Olive, and she's oh. the best. She's a labradoodle. She's very chill now. She's eight. They were they're a mess early on. Do you ever talk through books with Olive oh, when I you're do. at walking? Is that how yeah. you think through? Oh, she hates it. So I actually um, often when I can't write, I will read, and sometimes I read poetry. And of course, you have to read poetry out loud. Mm. And you can't just read it out loud to the air. You have to read it to the only animate creature in the room, which is Olive. And so I look at Olive and I read poetry to her. And she gets up very gently and leaves the room. (laughs) Follow her through the house. You're not reading her those poems from Don Quixote, are you? No, God, never. No. But you know, a little Emily Dickinson goes a long way to a dog. Other than Emily Dickinson, um, who do you read? I often think I've always always say this like poetry i love poetry why do i read it so rarely yeah uh, i i like to read it um often just because they're small books that really give you tools for your own work um so kaveh akbar is really good he has a new novel coming out called martyr it's amazing it's so good it's coming out in january um ada limon who's our new uh laureates in the U.S. Um, it, she's not strictly a poet, even though I, I think she is. Um, but Emily Wilson, who did the the new Iliad um, and she did the Odyssey, she's unbelievable. When it comes to her ear, nobody's better than Emily. And, and she's doing translation at the same time. I don't even know how she does it. She's genius. It's incredible. There are a lot of people. I love a lot of poetry. Oh, there are some fabulous recommendations there. I'm so fascinated by translators as well. Mm-hmm. I met an author at the weekend. He's writing a book about um, Shakespeare in translation Ooh. in different places. Oh, that's interesting. And because I wanted to know whether there were any countries that were kind of, they've, who has Shakespeare sort of the most relatively recently. Yeah. You're saying what does tend to happen is everyone... Everyone does the biggie straight away and you'll have sort of, you know, five Romeo and Juliet's knocking about and ten Hamlets, but people are slow to do kind of, you know, Troilus and Richard the third part too. Yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> that's right, yeah. The tricky yeah. history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've read all of, in order to write Pastor, I read all of Shakespeare and there are, some, it gave me a lot of heart that even Shakespeare could write a bad play. <laughs> There's some pretty bad plays there too. I know it sounds terrible to say, but Pericles is quite bad. Because <laughs> I vaguely remember, and I might have this wrong, because I think I only read Pericles because I was assigned it. I'm not sure I would have got to it. But I do remember, is there a lot of Pericles that kind of became the Tempest? I don't I think, know. I, I feel like it's about a man and his daughter in a, a drowning or a shipwrecking. Or, I is, hated is it so much. Is that very violent? I don't even remember. I'll be honest. But I, I do, didn't like it, so I didn't. I put it out of I my love mind. This idea, and I love it with <laughs> contemporary writers as well. But when yeah. you see and you read early work, and you're like, yeah. oh, you're working through this. Right. And that's the genesis of something. Right. I love Catherine Heine and her yeah. 
I think her short story collection, Single Carefree Mellow, came out first. Huh. And you can sort of see that in her novels. And it's mm. like notes and outlines for things that are going to become oh, bigger. And I, think, oh. I do. I like to watch, uh, like to, to be a completist for writers because I like to trace their development over time. Like I think someone who is really interesting that way is Rachel Cusk mm. because because of the way she had that immense like earthquake halfway through and decided to do the outline style. And that's what she's doing now. And she's sort of, she, um, it's it's kind of astonishing what she did because she was, I mean, she, she's a great writer now. She was a great writer before when she was doing more plot-driven stuff. Uh, I think it's fascinating. Really fascinating. Yeah. And I think really encouraging as yeah. well. I love the idea that we can all just throw it all out the window and do something completely, completely dramatically yes. unexpected, make a real departure. Right? We all should probably at one point have a midlife crisis. Go right. off in the auto fiction area. Mm. <laughs> right, space operas and westerns. Which is opera operas. I would do that in a heartbeat. I feel like your work is made for opera. I think that would be <gasps> Thank incredible. Thank you for saying that. I actually wrote Fates and Furies as an opera, to, like as a, like a, a novel opera. I would love for it to be an opera. I tried to approach a couple of... Um, opera composers and they didn't want anything to do with it but i would love for that to happen oh, i mean that like we must have someone <laughs> listening who can compose an opera because they're just so lush and so dramatic and so you know for the stage oh I've, I, I grew up in cooperstown new york which has nothing in it but it does have an amazing opera house and every summer it's for young artists they come and they sort of they do their first major roles, their first, you know, Queen of the Nights uh, here at this relatively small country opera house that only seats, I want to say, a thousand people. But it's the productions are incredible. And then when you were a kid who lived in town, um, you could just get tickets for no money at all. I went to like five operas a year when I was like a little kid. And, um, you know, it'd be one was like, uh, of course, like musicals, but Pirates of Penzance is a light opera, right? And and then all the way through to really intense, very strange, modern things that I didn't understand at all. Uh, so it's it's kind of, it was extraordinary. And that went deep into my work for and you, sure. you go because it's, it's on. And I've heard people who make movies, you talk about growing up and, you know, all there was to do was like, there was a very small, yeah. Maybe sort of just show the same two films over and over again for a month and then and you know and not new films and just right. like, and that those are now the you know our great directors because they yeah yeah you know, they fell into an obsession there's something about um being screamed at by a, a person with incredible vocal power <laughs> that really can like like drill a narrative <laughs> into you um so yeah no it's it was foundational to my to my artistic life for sure is the opera house still there yeah it's called glimmer glass it's me- it's spectacular it's it's my favorite place i love that so much because i think especially here you know, I think, oh, how wouldn't it be lovely to go to the opera? And I think that, because I've, I've seen a couple and loved them mm-hmm. and not sort of gone with friends, not really know where to begin. Yeah. But there are so many barriers, I think. But, you know, in London, yes. and it's sort of, it's you know, it's sort of expensive money and yeah. time. And you yeah. do think, I just, I'd need to plan it and know it. And yeah. I love the idea of maybe I'll, you know, go and stay up there for a summer and just yeah. see. It's probably cheaper than going it's, to the A&O. Yes, it's I very mean, cheap. Even including like your 
uh, your flight. Your flight, exactly. Or you could go to Berlin, which has, I want to say, four opera houses, and they are so inexpensive. I was just in Berlin for, for six months. They're so cheap. Um, you could you have a selection of five or six operas you could go to every single week. It's really amazing. Um, and it's so thrilling, too, because they, they don't just do the standards. They also sort of branch out and do some crazy stuff. It's really exciting. Oh, that would be really, yeah. really fun. Just go to Berlin for the week. How was Berlin? We the writing or teaching I was at the American Academy in Berlin um, so I just had to give one lecture and then listen to my other fellows give lectures it was so wonderful I live in Gainesville Florida a disastrous place right now because of all the banned books and uh, the really severe political climate and everything Um, so getting away to Berlin to like a real cosmopolitan artistic place was so wonderful heaven i always just think of kind of christopher isherwood still and obviously yes. you know that's a, a snapshot of a, a small a place in a moment and even when things weren't free you could be very free there yes if you found a way and you had to look oh i love uh, you know the germans um the attitudes are so beautiful and kind of soft. Like, this is not what we are trained to think of uh, when it comes to German people. But, um, you know, everywhere you go in the summer, there are these lakes where you, people just strip off all their clothes and go swimming and come out. And the mere fact that there's nudity everywhere makes it not sexual mm. whatsoever. And it's just really like there's a, a climate of acceptance and like tolerance that was very strange coming from the American South, which has no tolerance whatsoever for any sort of And behavior. I imagine so many weird sort of ornate rules that yeah. no one actually spells out but. no yeah no right yes you do not perspire as a woman and that's really hard if in, you're in <laughs> in Florida. Florida. Yeah. yes there are many many things that happen in um in civilized um drawing rooms in in the south that are really arcane and ornate going back to banned books in this terrifying time yeah it's so alarming for children and adults never not being able to to celebrate literature practically speaking is there anything that you think a person can do well i do i think there are many things that a person can do um so i don't know if you know this but the vast majority of the the challenges to the books are come from 11 individuals so it is a um an example of a very tiny minority ruling over the rights of the vast majority of people. So some of the things we can do are um, some states have actually adopted um, a no book banning rule. I mean, we could do that now. Will we do that? No, it's Florida. (laughs) We're already lost. But um, what individuals can do is make these books available in any way they possibly can and that could be a free library on their lawn it could be donating these books to an organization that disseminates them to children right there are a lot of things we can do and a lot of people are actually pushing back um today i found out this um bookshop.org i don't know if you have it here okay lovely they have uh, in florida a banned book store so any floridian can get for free a banned book uh so even people who don't necessarily need the the financial wherewith you know um money to do it can get a banned book and then give it to whoever they want to it's really an astonishing thing and it's funded by um well-meaning 
people, billionaire, someone somewhere. Oh, but thank goodness, <laughs> finally a well-meaning billionaire. At least we have one. <laughs> Yeah. That's really, really heartening, yeah, I think. It's good. And it's that's good. what I love so much about these conversations is I think, you know, it will prevail and we will oh, prevail. Yeah. This is how we communicate and explore yeah. and share ideas. That's I right. just read a book. Oh, I don't think I've quite finished it yet because it's got a little bit kind of, it's um, diaries. Called, I think it's called I Could Not Believe It, the Teenage Diaries of Sean Delere. Have you come across that? Yeah. It's about being queer teenager in Southern California and Los Angeles in the 70s and I don't want to misgender Sean who I think um, I'm not sure what their pronouns were when they died and I think they died quite young but as um, in the diaries and in the book Sean I think at that point used he but yeah it's and admittedly he talks about just how important books and book, mm-hmm. bookstores were a lot of it was like straight up porn, like filth, 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 but that yeah. at that time, the freedom to be a, a queer teenager. I mean, I love it as well, because um, don't get me wrong, I love an introspective queer teenage book that talks about, you know, the challenges yeah. and the sort of, you know, the things in kind of Jeanette Winterson territory. Yeah, yeah. But Sean Delere is having a lovely time. Um <laughs> And yeah, just sort of getting the bus and like picking yeah. up guys and going yeah. to glory holes and reading. But it's um, a little bit when he's um, when they're not in a, a glory hole um, in a bookshop always. <laughs> uh, are there any books on your pile that you're really excited about reading or anything you're looking forward to over the coming months? Oh, there's so many. I am halfway through Kairos by Jenny Erpenbeck. Um, and I had to leave it because I didn't want to lose it in a hotel room because I've been on the road for a month at this point and I'm so tired. Um, I'm halfway through Libra by Don DeLillo and it's not my favorite DeLillo. It's okay. It's fine. There's a really good beginning and then the rest of it is a little, you know, snoozy. Um, But I love that, that (laughs) even Don DeLillo can, you know, not... Well, favorite writers can't write our favorite books every time. I find I that know. very heartening. It's very wonderful, right? I mean, I, I will give him every single chance because of Underworld and because of, um, oh my gosh, uh, White Noise, mm. right? I mean, yeah. What else? I don't even know. What are you interested in? What are you excited uh, Well, I get like you, I had, and I think it's so lovely when you're away for a little while and you think, I really want to bring this book with me. But when I return, I'm so looking forward to getting back into it. Mm-hmm. So I'm finally, finally in the middle of um, Big Swiss by Jen Vegan. Oh, so fun. Isn't that a fun so book? Yeah, fun. yeah. I just, I love the, the wit of it. It's, and it, yes. again, in a weird way, I think there are some parallels with Vaster Wilds in terms of this, huh. the outdoors and how the outdoors gets indoors. <laughs> and the, when she's talking about the, you know, this beautiful crumbling house she's yeah. living in, like the window, the glass falling out the window panes and stuff. Have and you gotten to the point where there are the bees in the ceiling? Yeah. Yeah. And the honey mm. dripping down. <laughs> it's an amazing. Yeah, I really enjoyed that book a lot. I listened to that on audiobook. Pat, thank you so no, much. That was pleasure. so much fun. Yeah, I really, had a really, really fun enjoyed time. it. This is my favorite kind of conversation is the book conversation. Okay. <laughs> and just talking about books for an hour. It's marvelous. Huge thanks to Lauren. The Vaster Wilds is published by Cornerstone and out now. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and created by Dale Shaw and me, Daisy Buchanan.
To see all the books Lauren mentioned, go to acast.com slash booked and you can shop the selection on our page at bookshop.org. Find us and follow us on social media at whybooked and if you're feeling especially generous, we would hugely appreciate a five-star review. As well as helping us, you could be helping a new listener discover the podcast and find their new favourite book. For now, I leave you with this from Stephen Sondheim. It takes almost as much imagination to justify what you write as it does to write it. See you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.